Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Chief Economist here at Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew, Senior Economist at Aberdeen. And today we are talking about long-run global economic growth with our colleague Robert Gilhuey, Bob, who has a forthcoming report on how the rise and fall of populations will drive the global economic rankings out to 2050, and indeed another on the long-term outlook for growth in emerging Asia specifically, which is going to be the linchpin of, of global growth over the next several decades. So, Bob, great to have you on the pod. Thanks, Bob. So let's start then with some of the high-level highlights of your work. As things stand today, global trend growth is about 2.5% a year, depending on exactly how you measure it. The US, China, the Eurozone are the biggest economies by GDP in the world. How how does global economic growth, how do these standings change by, by 2050? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, the overarching picture is one of, of slowing global growth. Um, we think it's likely to fade from that annual growth rate of around 2.5% to about 1.5% uh, over the next quarter century. Emerging markets overall might be the engine of global growth, but it's really Asia which appears to have the kind of brightest prospects within this. Indeed, China and developing Asia might account for around about 60% of global growth by 2050, up from a bit less than 50% before the pandemic struck. And the whole of Asia could maybe be more than about a bit over 45% of the global economy, which is about 10 percentage points higher than today. I mean, we'd probably argue the most relevant metric for markets uh, and also geopolitical power is kind of real dollar value uh, of GDP rather than purchasing power parity, which is uh, what these these numbers are all based on. And using this, our forecast show that India is likely to displace Japan to be the fourth largest economy in the world around 2032. China should then overtake the US a year or two after that, likely maybe a bit before 2035. Well, Indonesia will make it into the top seven uh, in the global economy rankings around about 20. 45. But there's also a few a few notable mentions. Philippines, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Vietnam all likely to make very significant progress up the ranks in the global economy, with the latter three all breaking into the top 25 global economies uh, for the first time. Now, you know, given it's a kind of ranking, clearly there's going to be some losers here. Countries falling down the ranks include Taiwan. Now, that's largely just a function of it being relatively small and fairly developed already. It's really, I think, the major oil exporters such as Russia, Saudi Arabia and Norway that kind of stand out, if you will, this kind of fall from grace. I don't think Russia's likely to be a surprise to anyone here. Uh, but it's notable how bad the productivity performance of kind of large hydrocarbon exporters uh, has been uh, since the global financial crisis. I mean, their productivity just hasn't been weak. It's actually been contracting in an absolute sense. And then I think we could probably argue that all of them then face maybe some additional downside risks from kind of the global effort to reduce dependence uh, on oil and transition to a slightly greener economy. So one of the cliches that's often trotted out when people talk about long-term growth, Bob, is this phrase that demographics is destiny. The idea, I guess, that population growth, the size of populations and patterns of in-population will be in some sense determinant of growth levels. But of course, I guess we as economists would tend to come at the determinants of growth with a slightly broader perspective, this idea of a production function, which of course does have 
uh, population in or at least a labor force in and the degree of human capital that that labor force might have developed but the capital stock and then the efficiency by which those human and capital inputs are brought together so with that sort of broader sense of what determines growth in mind i mean are there any stories you can tell us in terms of how say productivity or changes in labor force participation might be pushing back against some of the demographic patterns that would otherwise by some people be seen as destiny yeah sure i mean first of all i think it might be just worth noting quickly that there are quite wildly different demographic backdrops facing uh, different countries, you know, India and Indonesia, we expect to see their populations expand by about 250 and, and 40 million, respectively, by 2050. At the same time period, China might have shrunk by about 113 million. By the end of this century, China's population might have fallen by about 650 million people. So that's getting pretty close to kind of losing the equivalent of both the US and Eurozone put together in terms of people. So, you know, it does sound quite important when it's kind of framed like that, doesn't it? But, you know, I think I think you're right in the way you've set it up there, Luke. The ageing pressures in terms of when we think about growth forecasts can often be exaggerated, particularly when we're thinking of a sort of 2025-year 20, uh, time horizon. So if we consider dependency ratios, which are typically defined this kind of quote-unquote working age groups, and those kind of between 16 to 64 versus the rest of the population. Given ageing populations in most countries, it's unsurprisingly these kind of dependency ratios are moving uh, adversely. But it's also the case the distribution of workers has been becoming older too. In younger age groups, uh, employment rates have been falling as a higher education has become more of the norm, and that's true in both developed markets and emerging markets. So that's been pushing down participation rates of those younger age groups. At the same time, rising life expectancy is making working lives longer, you know, boosting the employment and participation of these older uh, age groups. So, you know, if instead we look at the dependency ratio in terms of workers around those of working age, we actually find that these are set to improve in several countries rather than worsen, particularly India, Indonesia and Malaysia really stand out uh, on that front. So you're getting kind of misleading steer by looking at those high level uh, demographic uh, indicators. But, you know, more generally, I think this shift in the workforce to be comprised of older workers uh, often means you know, the workforce projections that underpin these production functions are kind of not as, uh, as as adverse as you might you might be worried about. Even in countries uh, um, such as China and Thailand who face unambiguous, you know, demographic challenges, um, we can still kind of find some offset there. Particularly human capital still has room to grow. Uh, for many emerging markets, we think we should be able to expect continued gains in both education, skills, and the returns to education and skills crucially. And that will do a lot, I think, to offset uh, a shrinking workforce. So kind of to put simply, I think quality matters just as much as quantity uh, within the labour market when you're thinking about long-run growth. And another way, Bob, that um, the demographic picture is made more complicated in terms of how it ultimately impacts growth is by changes in migration patterns, which can offset, in some cases, mm-hmm. um, demographic aging. So to what extent is that a, a, a boon or a drag on different parts of the global economy? Yeah, I mean, you know, to a large extent, migration is is basically a kind of zero sum game when we're thinking about uh, populations and, and country growth. Open 
border countries, I'd loosely term them, such as those you know within the European Union, where you have that obviously legal right to move. Um, I think they are the kind of potential for migration flows to surprise are probably the highest. They're, you know, they're most difficult to pin down. It is the case that within the UN population projections, they do make assumptions about migration, but clearly, I think for within uh, some countries within the European Union, that's kind of more more uncertain. The broad pattern that we kind of see in the data is one of where basically parts of developed Europe are being effectively kind of propped up by migration at the expense of emerging Europe. So emerging Europe population is expected to fall on average a bit more than kind of 10% by 2050. This helps to kind of keep Germany's population fall to a more modest minus 6%, whereas it would have been say around minus 10% otherwise. And immigration is actually expected to push France's population to increase marginally, so maybe rising around about 2%. And if there was no migration, it would probably be falling at almost, almost 5%. There. Now, of course, Eastern Europe is itself, you know, aging quickly. So there is some risk that demographics here creates a bit of a negative uh, feedback loop. If aging countries are kind of losing their workers, this puts extra strain on the sustainability of social welfare models and public debt. So a more austere backdrop for public services could then actually spur more emigration, maybe worsening the drag just beyond that kind of mechanical inclusion of having kind of fewer fewer workers and more old age dependents. And then, you know, conflict, of course, is the major wild card here. Um, it's estimated that nearly one third of Ukrainians have been displaced, both kind of within and outside their country. Over about four million registered for protection schemes within Europe since the war with Russia began. It's around about one and a half million now in Poland, Germany hosting around about 900,000. But the refugee kind of situation remains you know, exceptionally fluid. Uh, there's been large numbers of kind of returners uh, to Ukraine, making an assessment of, like the long run effects very difficult. Now, within the UN population projections, which we're using as part of our growth work, we it assumes that the uh, impact uh, from Ukraine on the working age population effectively peaks around about 2024, but then actually largely unwinds in the following three to four years. But there's clearly a risk here that prolonged conflict leads to a much more permanent exodus, but I guess propping up kind of developed Europe again uh, on that side. Uh, interestingly, OECD estimates that about 1.2 million Ukrainians will actually join the EU workforce uh, in the long run, primarily working in the service sector. So, you know, we just can't really predict those sort of uh, those sort of events and kind of how migration flows will 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 uh, unfold. So taking us back, Bob, to this concept of the production function that I was asking about earlier, I guess one idea that's very much associated with that way of thinking about growth, at least when it comes to questions of standards of living and GDP per capita is of catch up that there are some countries at the frontier of production i guess in this particular case the developed world and and the us in particular and then there are lots of other countries who by building out their capital stock both physical and human and importing some of the innovations of the cutting edge countries into their own economies they can enjoy a sustained period of high growth as they converge and catch up on the frontier. Now it's turned out in practice to be rather more difficult than that would theory would suggest in terms of delivering convergence and there's been a lot of countries that have been caught in the so-called middle income 
trap. They've never been able quite to converge to the developed world frontier. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about this sort of convergence versus middle income trap dynamics. And I suppose in particular, the question or the economy that's really pressing in that regard is China and what its prospects are in terms of convergence. And maybe to put the question in a slightly sloganistic way, I mean, what are the chances that China grows old before it grows rich? Yeah, thanks, Luke. I mean, there's certainly nothing preordained about the ability of emerging markets to become uh, advanced economies and converge uh, with that frontier, as, as you noted. I think re- recent history is fairly you know, packed full of examples, actually, of emerging markets seemingly being on a, a strong growth path, then hopes kind of only to be uh, to only be dashed. So just to take, pick one example, uh, after a period of very impressive kind of catch-up growth in the 2000s, Brazil then effectively has kind of gone backwards for a long period, particularly after uh, after 2015. So a lot of things matter within this kind of equation that you kind of can't really capture uh, within your production function, institutional quality, strength, uh, corruption, uh, education, health, um, you know, just to name name a few other kind of uh, dynamics. I mean, turning turning to, to China there, I mean, we do know for sure China is going to get old. And this opens up a few risks. The one I'd probably focus on here is the risks around uh, around real estate. I mean, after all, we know real estate is driving, you know, somewhere between 15 to 25 percent of the economy, depending on how you measure upstream and downstream linkages. Uh, And clearly, you don't need as many houses if your population uh, is falling. So there's a risk here, I think, of this kind of inability to transition to a new growth model, one that's less reliant on real estate. Uh, investment. I guess the good news, I'd probably couch that as relative good news, is that China's population might be declining uh, with, with you know, 2022 being the first year of, of, of decline. It doesn't necessarily signal like a sort of impending collapse in underlying housing demand. Aside from urbanization, which we still think has still some ways to run, China's private housing market really only began in the late 1990s implying considerable scope remains to upgrade the housing stock. Uh, and then it's, you know, it's the demographic shifts that matter just as much as the overall population moves. So considering household formation by five-year age groups implies there is still a somewhat powerful batting average effect uh, going on. So changing the population composition uh, continues to drive household formation, we think, a fair pace until about 2035. Think that should should be enough to sort of drive around about four million or so households being formed each year. Now, household formation itself doesn't actually peak until almost 2045, so well behind the uh, peak in population. Uh, of course, this is still a weakening tailwind. Four million additional households per year is around half the rate that we had between 2000 and 2010. Uh, and there's a non-trivial risk of excess inventory uh, needing to be unwound. But I think kind of some, there's some good news as well. You know, sectoral reallocation from agriculture to manufacturing and services kind of goes hand in hand with continued urbanization. The share of workers in agriculture looks probably about where you'd expect it to be given China's stage of development. So even if the population has started to decline, it doesn't mean that labor supply has been exhausted. You know, you can still move people from agriculture into manufacturing. And I think this should keep the middle income trap at bay for a while longer. So I think, you know, this, this debate will... Uh, will rage on. 
Uh, but I think, you know, the crunch points are still still a way off, actually. I want to ask you a bit more, Bob, about urbanization trends then, especially in, in China and in Asia as a, as a driver of growth. Because we did a, a early podcast, actually, in our series on the future of cities, um, deep during COVID, where people were questioning you know, the future growth of cities and, and urbanization in the developed market economies. That was worrying at the time because agglomeration benefits packing people together in cities has this positive externality of raising productivity. So back to, to the production function, it's a crucial way in which productivity and therefore long-run growth increases over time. And of course, urbanization trends have all sorts of other investment implications as well, not least for the the demand for for urban infrastructure across the the Asian economies that you've been speaking about. Then, Bob, how much further does urbanisation have to run? Have those easy gains already been used up, or is there still plenty of urbanisation still coming down the tracks? Yeah, you know, I think overall it's it's a bit of a mixed picture, but the tailwind from urbanisation uh, is still there. It might be slowing, but it's still a positive driver for Asia overall. And as you said, as the urbanizers should correspondingly drive still quite a lot of construction activity. Uh, even emerging markets with, you know, say, the kind of relatively unfavorable demographics, they still need more transport, building and public service infrastructure. Still the case that capital stock per worker is well below that in developed markets. Hence, you know, kind of capital deepening across a wide array of categories, you know, your buildings, your plant and machinery, vehicles, software and ICT to say nothing of kind of green energy needs. That should offset or more than offset, in fact, the drag from kind of the capital stock from having fewer workers. I mean, it's also the case that emerging markets tend to have slightly higher depreciation rates than developed markets, hence, you know, that kind of upgrading and maintenance needs, you know, they still need to be met at a slightly higher pace, all of which suggests, you know, a very substantial flow of investment. In fact, you know, our calculations suggest that one out of every two dollars spent in global investment is going to be in Asia. And that equates to a fairly staggering $390 trillion in total investment flows uh, out to 2050. That's all in, all in real terms as well. So given that rather staggering figure that you quoted there, Bob, uh, it's perhaps unsurprising that a big theme in markets for years if not decades is the divergence of asian growth experiences from the rest of the world and that's certainly been a theme in this conversation too i suppose but in particular people are interested in the idea of the the rise of the asian middle class consumer as a as a big driver of global growth so what observations do you have on that as the importance of asia becoming its own distinct engine of global growth going forward yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a risk here. De- kind of decoupling has been, I'd say, prematurely discussed for many years. I'm sure I've seen reports of this stretching back virtually to when China joined the World Trade Organization. But I think at this kind of high level, you know, we're talking about 25-year time frame here. Frame here, there is kind of something to this. Um, since consumption share of GDP tends to rise, correspondingly, investment share tends to fall as countries develop. The the consumption moves underneath the surface, underneath the surface, are, are even bigger than the headline growth numbers that we've been talking about here. So if I took China as an example, uh, current consumption uh, within GDP is around half that 
of the United States, if we look at the, the, the real dollar figures. Uh, and given the lower share of consumption in China, it's going to take a bit longer for China's consumption to overtake America's. But then it's starting from a kind of lower base too. So by 2050, it could be about 10% larger, around about $25 trillion, which is about a threefold rise uh, in China's consumption uh, within GDP. And, and there's some pretty punchy numbers coming out of the rest of Asia too. So India's consumer market could perhaps grow by a fourfold over the next 30 years. Emerging Asia, we think uh, outside China and India could probably more than double. Uh, by comparison, the euro area consumption is only growing by around about 15 to 20 percent. So these are some really big moves uh, happening. And as I think those kind of consumption becomes this much larger share, it is going to be natural to think of kind of Asia becoming a bit, bit decoupled, a bit more of a kind of driver uh, in its own right. Um, and then I guess as Asia's middle classes expand alongside incomes, you know, we do think the nature of consumption within this is going to evolve too, uh, increasingly resembling that seen in kind of middle and high income economies. So the share of expenditure on kind of essentials such as food and clothing should be falling, share of expenditure on housing, healthcare, transport, other items such as personal care should be rising. Uh, and this is the backdrop where I think these patterns are going to also be amplified by the demographic shifts. So this kind of emergence of a silver economy as populations age and kind of become a bit older should further boost spending on some of these categories, particularly those like healthcare uh, and also we think entertainment uh, looks set to looks set to emerge too. So I think that is all that we have time for this week. So. As ever, please do indulge me as I ask you to uh, like and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. And then all that remains is for me to thank Bob for his excellent contributions and the report that underlies the analysis today. And also to thank you all for listening. So thanks very much and speak again soon. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.